Hello, my name is Joel Allen, and this is the McGovern Report. The McGovern Report is the voice of the McGovern Center for Leadership and Public Service here on the campus of Dakota Wesleyan University in Mitchell, South Dakota. For the last two years, the McGovern Center has organized several groups of students to work together to advocate for passage of a bill in the South Dakota legislature that would add clergy to the list of professions which are mandatory reporters of suspected cases of child abuse and neglect. South Dakota, it turns out, is one of the very few states that does not include clergy as mandatory reporters, even though clergy are exactly the kinds of persons who might know about such abuse and neglect in their community. This bill, for two years, has been voted out of committee but died on the floor of the House. It's been unsuccessful both years as it's encountered considerable headwind from those who depict it as a challenge to the Second Amendment right to the free expression of religion. This year, two Dakota Wesleyan students, Andrea Holt and Rex Schlicht, became particularly involved in this effort. In this episode of the McGovern Center Report, I interview them both about their involvement and their thoughts about the justification for this bill. It truly is no threat to the Second Amendment and would truly protect the children of our state. In this episode, I first provide background for the bill, and then I interviewed Rex and Andrea. And finally, I dig a little deeper into the biblical and moral justification for the bill. I hope you enjoy this second edition of the McGovern Report. So here's the story behind House Bill 1212. For those of you that are not Methodists, the Methodist Church is divided up into regions we call conferences, and every conference has a board of ordained ministries which oversees the process by which pastors are ordained and pastoral issues. And so at our board, so in our conference, we're in the Dakotas Conference, which includes both North and South Dakota. And last year when they were having a, a board of ordained ministries meeting, they had a conversation about the fact that in North Dakota, pastors are mandatory reporters of suspected cases of child neglect and abuse, and in South Dakota, pastors are not. And they had a conversation about how they think this is good legislation, how it helps pastors to do their job and, and give priority to the needs of children when there are suspected cases of child neglect and abuse, and uh, how they're kind of concerned about the fact that South Dakota does not name clergy in their list of mandatory reporters. So mandatory reporters include school teachers, police social workers, all kinds of people that are involved in helping, caring, protecting professions for children. But South Dakota doesn't require pastors to be mandatory reporters. There's a reason why I got I became interested in this topic. Well, let me back up and continue telling the story. On the Board of Ordained Ministries, we have a professor here at Dakota Wesleyan University. Again, my name is Joel Allen. I teach uh, religion and philosophy at Dakota Wesleyan University. And one of my colleagues is Dr. Alicia Vincent, who sits on the Board of Ordained Ministries as a lay representative. She uh, was curious about this conversation, and she decided she would uh, make it a class project for a public policy class. So she came back to Dakota Wesleyan and got a group of students last year uh, to, to focus on this issue, and they put together some great resources and really researched the topic. And they learned that in the state of, that in the United States, there are only five or so case uh, uh, states that are not mandatory reporters. In most states of the United States, uh, pastors are mandatory reporters. I think it's 45 out of the 50 states. And so it's very curious why 
why is South Dakota not a mandatory reporter? And so she started talking about this. And so as I started learning more about this class project, I realized that I would be interested in providing testimony because I have an experience, some experience with this issue. In 2001, I was serving a church in another state. And in that state, uh, I was a mandatory reporter for uh, suspected cases of child neglect and abuse. But I didn't know that I was a mandatory reporter. And so what happened was I learned one day that a 16-year-old girl in my congregation had been sexually attacked by a deacon in the church in a church of a friend of mine, a, a man I knew quite well through the Ministerial Association. So I got a call very shortly after that from this pastor whose deacon had sexually attacked a young lady in my church, and he pled with me to not report it. He pled with me. He described how they were going to take this very seriously, that they were going to provide him counseling and accountability and all this kind of thing. And I, I didn't know what to do. I was inclined to report, but I just didn't know what to do. So I called my district superintendent and explained the situation. And my district superintendent very wisely said, Joel, you are a mandatory reporter in this state. You do not have a choice here. You need to call and report this. And learning that brought an incredible amount of relief. It was just like, ah, oh, now I know what I need to do. And so I made the call and I never regretted it. I mean, I felt like, yes, I did the right thing, but I was so appreciative of that law that helped me to make the right choice. It just clarified in my mind what my priorities needed to be. So the law helped me to do the right thing, just as the pastors in North Dakota that were saying in our Board of Ordained Ministries meeting, they were saying it's not cumbersome and it helps us to place priorities where they need to be. I found that out from personal experience. So I wanted to testify about that, and I did. It was a snowy day. I called in. We weren't able to drive in, and I provided testimony. But there was another story that was very interesting that was provided by Dr. Vincent, her personal uh, story. And I will, I'm hoping to get her on the podcast to tell that story. I'll let her tell her own story. But we had two very effective stories that helped to make clear that this law helps pastors to do their job, helps them to make priorities the what they should be of placing a priority on the protection and safety of our children, and it's not cumbersome at all. So again, last year and this year, I've been involved in this bill. I went to this year and provided testimony. I told them that story, and and uh, we had a very good reception. The, the legislators on the House Judiciary Committee were very, uh, they really got it. They understood what we were saying, and um, so we had, uh, I thought, a very good hearing. The bill sponsor, uh, Representative Aaron Healy, made a great case for it. We had an attorney there from a Center for the Protection of Children in the state, and, and she made a great case for it. And so I thought we had a really good morning providing testimony on this bill. There were some concerns brought by other pastors, very understandable concerns, that this might degrade the quality of the confessional, that there are times where a penitent sinner might be less inclined to repent and to be open about their sins if they feel they would be, uh, they would be reported. Interestingly, one of the representatives there in the Judiciary Committee is a person who graduated from seminary herself. She's never served a church, but she went to seminary. She went to Duke Divinity School, and she uh, got up and talked about this bill and very passionately in favor of it. And she said, I've done a lot of calling around to my pastor friends, and I've learned from my pastor friends that it just almost never happens, that they learn about these kinds of cases through the confessional with a penitent sinner. He, they, she said, they pastors learn about this from all of my calling and research. Pastors learn about suspected cases of child neglect and abuse 
in the daily life of being a pastor, but not in a confessional context. So we felt like a friendly amendment was in order. We added that to kind of carve out that, that if a pastor learns about this in a confessional context, they're not required to report, but that uh, under the no other normal circumstances, they're required to report. And I felt like it didn't denuder the bill in any way because of our learning that that's not the norm. So there were two groups that were opposed to the bill. One, a group of pastors, actually the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America was against the bill mainly because of what I said, of the concerns about the degrading of the quality of the pastor penitent sinner relationship. And so our carve out uh, solved that issue and so they got on board. Well, I learned the night before this hearing meeting that with the Judiciary Committee that there was going to be a group of people from the Family Heritage Alliance or a representative from the Ham Family Heritage Alliance speaking against the bill. And it turned out that Norm Norman Woods, the, uh, the executive director of the Family Heritage Alliance, was in the committee meeting and spoke out against the bill. And here's where things start to get interesting. <music> Hey, I'm here today in the uh, media studio here at Dakota Wesleyan University with two of our students, students that were involved in House Bill 1212, Rex Schlicht and, and Andrea Holt. And uh, so I, I want you guys to, if you just introduce yourselves and we'll take it from there. So I'm Andrea Holt, I'm a freshman. I'm from Brookings. I'm a nonprofit and Christian leadership major. Yes. And I'm Rex Schlicht. I'm a senior here at Dakota Wesleyan. I'm a creative writing minor criminal justice major and I'm from Woonsocket. All right, the mighty town of Woonsocket. All right, it's just got a great name. It does. Doesn't it? it just has a great name. So, um, so I just want to chat with you guys a little bit about how you got involved, what attracted you to this. And now Andrea has been a page in the state uh, capital and pier, and so she was very familiar. And it was very helpful to have her there because she like knew where to go. And it's a very confusing <laughs> building, isn't it? So Andrea, if you want to just kind of tell how you got involved or what drew you to this. Well, with last year with being a page, I actually knew that the bill was going to be out there last year and okay. listened to it and kind of got to know more about it. And then when I came in August, Alicia told me that you guys were bringing it back. So she asked if I wanted to get involved, and I was like, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of one of my passions is to just be out in here and with the state legislature mm -hmm. and being um, so involved in the conference. I mean, having right. those two yeah. um, intertwine was kind of something that I really enjoyed. So yeah. that's why I got involved. And both, I should mention, both Andrea and Rex were volunteers. This wasn't a class project or anything like that. You just kind of devoted your time uh, freely. And so, and Rex, so how about yourself? What uh, drew you to this? Yeah, so I wasn't in the class last year that started the entire project, but mm -hmm. I always followed it pretty closely, and I had friends in the class who were always telling me little yeah, tidbits yeah. about it or happenings that were going on. And, um, you know, I actually find politics interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm one of those people. And <laughs> Dr. Vincent knows that, and she knows that I'm passionate about um, ministry and Christian topics. So mm -hmm. um, kind of like Andrea she just kind of threw the line out there of saying, right. would you maybe want to help with this? And, and I was willing to. So. Oh, that's great. That's great. And so Andrea, one of her projects was to put together a, a kind of updated 
And as you remember, we, we, we uh, brought this bill last year, or, or a very similar bill, last year, and some students worked on it, which I've already described, so people know that. But, um, but th so they put together a kind of information sheet, and Andrea took it and updated it and got it all uh, up and running for this time. So, Andrew, do you want to say anything about the information that you were able to put together? Yeah, I just kind of edited it a little bit to, for, like, adding the right house bill number and... Um, taking out some information from last year that wasn't technically in the bill for this year, so right. kind of editing it and making it uh, look nice and perfected mm -hmm. for when we would take it out to pier. Yeah, and I really appreciate this little piece of information here that that is helpful to know that when a person is reported, it doesn't mean anybody gets in trouble. Very often they'll go out and they'll just check and they do a welfare check on a child and check with the parents. And of course it can be traumatizing to parents. But my experience has been, and I've told Andrea this story, that one time uh, we had to report, uh, or, or I shouldn't say we had to report, I was in a situation where I oversaw a preschool and the director was going to report a case, and I didn't think the evidence was there. And I, I, I said, you make up your mind, but I don't think there's good evidence for it. It was just like the child had a bruise or something like that. And so, um, but she reported it, and the, there was a welfare check on this family, and it was a bit traumatizing to the family. Of course it would be. But they came back and thanked us for reporting because they said, you were looking out for our little girl, and we appreciate that. And so very often it's, it's, it's not as people can think, oh, you're causing all this trouble by encouraging people to report you know, crazy situations and then traumatizing families. But people only need to report if there's reasonable cause to suspect. They don't have to report just kind of silly stuff. They have reasonable cause. But I appreciated that because it shows that, that uh, people aren't, it doesn't mean like you report, they go to jail. That's not the situation. And that was really helpful helpful information. So, and then uh, Rex, you were involved as well, helping mm -hmm. to make calls. Both of you were helping make calls. And Rex helped to kind of put the, uh, I put a report together for the, um, for this legislative committee. Oh, and you know, I haven't even explained to people listening that we had a class uh, that did phone calling to pastors. I forgot to tell this when I was talking earlier. Did phone calls to pastors and ask, just to gauge pastors' feelings about it. And Rex kind of put together the data and analyzed the data for us. And so Rex, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So just after looking at the report that you had, um, you and your class had kind of accumulated together, I just thought it was really overwhelming the amount of support that there was for mm -hmm. House Bill 1212 and the very few that actually um, opposed it. Right. Uh, so I just thought having this graphic, you know, image where you can see mm -hmm what the data supports was really right. important. So I was just able to put it into a, a pie chart sorts. And, and with the pie chart, you can just see that um, over two thirds support it. Right. When you add in the, the people who are just neutral, it's almost 90% right. of either right. neutral or, or support for it. So I just right. thought it was overwhelming and people needed to see that. Yeah, yeah. And you know what was interesting to me out of all the call, because I, I helped them making the calls too, but the most interesting call for me was with the uh, with the imam at the uh, mosque in Sioux Falls. That guy was off the charts in support of it. He was like, Allah says that if you touch one of my children, you will be judged on the day of judgment. I mean, he was going on preaching the sermon to me. It was like, wow. I mean, I thought it was really cool, actually. I thought, man, if only our Christian pastors were that passionate <laughs> right. about this issue. I just was really amazed at how passionate the guy was. So um, so how about your experiences with phone calling and talk? Because you uh, filled out several contact reports. Both of you did. And so... 
Yeah, the I normally got stuck with voicemails, but the okay. one, the one that I did talk to was a church in Sioux Falls, and mm-hmm. the pastor there it was a Presbyterian church, okay. Press Presbyterian. So she was telling me how with their denomination they already have to report okay. within their denomination. So I just talked to her more about that, mm-hmm. and she was really interested on right. what would all go into making it um, into law, and she was in support of it because she didn't really think that since it's in their denomination, mm-hmm. she didn't think that, like, oh, it's not in other denominations. Right, right. So I thought that was interesting how yeah. she didn't realize, mm-hmm. and so just, I mean, it was a great conversation. Right. Um, she was really thankful that we were putting in this effort to okay. put it into law. So Cool, yeah. cool. Rex, any thoughts on yours? Yeah, so I was able to get a hold of a few people, um, got quite a few voicemails like Andrea, but the ones that I did talk to, the one that really – Surprise! Well, they were all kind of shocked and in a disarray that they weren't already yes, included. Yes, like, I discovered that too. They they already thought they were on these lists yes. and that it was already their obligation to do so. When finding that out, they were kind of shocked. Um, and what I also discovered is... And, and let's of, make that clear. They thought that, like, these are pastors that moved yes, here from out pastors. of state. And because it's already law in 45 states... They thought that they were already mandatory yes. reporters. Yeah. They're like, what? It's not mandatory in South Dakota? I didn't even know that. And right. so we had several instances where we were notifying these pastors that they're not mandatory right. reporters. Yeah, and so um, another biggest surprise was just maybe not the entire denomination or the conference of that church mm-hmm. uh, had that obligation, but uh, churches that I did talk to have those rules implemented yeah. just yeah. for their churches right. solely. Right. So. Mm-hmm. When you look at the numbers, most of them are going to be for it if, right. they are, if they don't already have it yes, yes. in effect. And it's helpful, too. Alicia made this point when we were actually in the, doing the te- testifying in the peer that, that, in a sense, this is for everyone else because a lot of denominations already have mandatory reporting rules. But a lot of small churches just don't even have a personnel policy, right? And, and so this is kind of helpful to cover other instances, but it is the case that a lot yeah. of so, and Andrea gave me some interesting information. I thought the bill was over, but apparently there might be a chance that it could come now back. Now it's over. Aaron tried to get enough votes to oh. suspend the rules, but oh, she tried yesterday before session and wasn't quite okay. able to get them. So well, that's now news to me. Okay. she told me that it was dead. It's done. Okay. It's no longer. And done. we've already tried for two years in a row. I don't think there'll be any bill next year. That can, we don't want to make them sick of us, <laughs> right? Like, oh, you again, you know? But uh, so it's probably over for now. But I think that uh, eventually we need to kind of revisit this yes. issue. It seems sad to me because it does seem to me like what happened is the needs of adults got prioritized over the needs of children. Because, you know, it's hard to report when it, you know, you find out your youth pastor's been doing some horrible stuff, being too intimate with the kids in the youth group, and that happens. Um, you know, this last thing you want to do to call the law. It's easier just to fire him and send him on, send them him or her packing. And, and then what happens is they do it again. And that's, Alicia told that story of a case exactly like that. So... So, yeah, I do feel sad that I feel like the wrong choice was made. Concerned, like the fear of losing First Amendment privileges. Which I don't really think is a valid argument considering other states have it into law. Somebody would have noticed that there's a problem with the First Amendment (laughs) if 45 states have it. And there's no Supreme Court case on it. Right, right. There's no challenge that's been brought into any court system, or state Supreme Court, or even state Supreme Mm -hmm. Courts. 
Uh, as, as far as we know, the attorney that told us that says, I've spent all last night looking and I couldn't find any challenges. So that says a lot that most states have it as their law and they don't, they, no one's like screaming First Amendment yeah. in print. There's no it. issue with them. So yeah, yeah. So why do we have an issue? Why in South Dakota? I don't know. I don't know. There isn't one because, you know, First Amendment is the government's not going to tell you how to worship mm -hmm. or who you can worship. Yeah. They aren't going to establish one denomination over the yeah, other. Yeah, 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 You know, back in the day, so like England, when they did do that, we yeah. don't have that here. Right, right, well, right. Well, this bill wasn't going to no, do that. No, no, no. It's don't. not saying, oh, you know, Methodists are the church of the Methodists. <laughs> right. you know, they're not saying right. anything like that. No, they're, we're not telling you how to worship. Right. We're not right. telling you what you can or can't do. And as far as I'm concerned, there's really not a right that says you can protect people who hurt children. Exactly. Like, that's and that's not, not a, a right part of any religion. Right, no. right, right. The way I like to say it, Rex, is like the government can't tell you how to teach your Bible study or what to think about the Bible, but it sure is can tell you how fast you can drive right. to the Bible <laughs> right. study if you're the pastor. But, uh, but and pastors are professionals who, you know, have duties like policemen and school teachers, you know, so... Anyway, hey, this has been fun, you guys. It's, I, I feel really uh, gratified. Thank you both for helping with this bill. And just so listeners know, I'm planning one more episode on this topic. Uh, we'll be talking, to, uh, hopefully scheduling something with Aaron Healy, Representative Healy, who is a, did a fantastic job advocating for this bill and really is a tireless worker. And then uh, maybe if we can schedule Alicia to get in, too, we could get the perspective, uh, their perspective on it. So, hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate yeah. you guys. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Bye-bye. So Norman Woods from the Family Heritage Alliance was at the committee and he provided testimony against our bill. And I was curious about it because he, he was not real strong about it. He just seemed to say that it was against, in their opinion, it was against the First Amendment. There was an infringement of their free exercise of religion. He seemed to be on a very friendly basis with the committee. They seemed to know who he is, who he was. And I found out later that he's there a lot testifying on a regular basis and that uh, they know him quite well. The Family Heritage Alliance is a very conservative evangelical group of collection of churches that provide testimony on issues that relate to family, faith, and freedom, which are their three main values on their website. And uh, so I, you know, I respect them. They're, they have every right to organize politically, to organize these churches into a large political action group. And I thought it was curious, or at least it was curious to me, he didn't seem real emotionally engaged in this. He was kind of at a jovial manner almost. And, and but he did say that he thought that this is a First Amendment infringement, and so but he didn't seem like, as I said, real. You know, he wasn't. It wasn't. I didn't get the feeling that he would be really outraged if this bill had passed. All he did was say that, in their opinion, it would provi it provided it was a case of an infringement of their free exercise of religion, as enshrined in the uh, First Amendment to the Constitution. So I am very convinced personally that there is no. First Amendment infringement by made by this bill. There is no problem with the First Amendment as this bill goes. And and as I said, his argument was kind of vague. He didn't specify in a very clear fashion exactly how this bill infringes on the First Amendment. So I thought we'd talk about that issue a little bit and then put it in a, in a biblical context. So I got on the website of the Family Heritage 
Heritage Alliance and found a video by a person, one of their representatives named uh, Phil Shively. And in the video, he talks about kind of their biblical basis for what they do. And he had two scriptures on a board. The first was 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll begin reading at verse 13, which is where it gets interesting for our sake. It says, For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of an emperor as supreme as supreme, or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and praise those who do right. And he said, well, who is, in our context, in the United States, who is our authority? What is the source of our the authority of our government? And then he turned to Romans chapter 13 and read only verse 1. But in Romans chapter 13, or I should just mention about Romans 13, you might remember this passage of Scripture really hit the news uh, uh, about a year ago when— um, uh, more than that, two years ago, maybe even when Jeff Sessions was the uh, Attorney General of the United States, he actually quoted Romans 13 uh, in, to justify the separation of children from their parents at the border, and it became a, quite a brouhaha. But Romans 13 made it into the news at that point, and so uh, the folks at Family Heritage Alliance uh, place a lot of stock in their interpretation of Romans 13. And so he turned to Romans 13 and said, here's the text that uh, that really we really see as kind of our text. And he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. But he said, he start, He just read the first little bit of this, let every person be in, subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except for God. And he said, in the United States, what's the highest authority we have? And he said, well, the highest authority in our government is the Constitution. And so we look to the Constitution as the authority that we are uh, that we are under, that we su- submit ourselves to. Now, there's no mention, of course, of the American Constitution in Romans 13, 1 through 3, or 2 Peter 2, of course. And he says that. He said, in our context, what would be the highest authority? But what's interesting is it's clear that what they want to talk about is not just the Constitution, but the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. That's the authority that they want to lift up and talk about and kind of champion in their context. But in neither case is there a kind of narrowing of focus like that, like saying we're only interested in one portion of the law. Both texts emphasize let every person be subject to governing authorities. And the Greek is specifically plural. The Greek specifically says let everyone be subject to the higher authorities. That would probably be the best translation of it. So what's curious to me about the situation is they're wanting to use these passages as like a passage to hold up to say, here is the part of the Constitution we're going to fight for. We're going to fight for our First Amendment rights. We're going to fight for our Second Amendment rights, although I don't know that they do anything on the Second Amendment. But on their webpage, this first and foremost is that they fight for religious liberty. So through this little uh, hermeneutical shift, they've been able to take a text which is saying that Christians ought to be submissive to the governing authorities, whatever they are in 1 Peter. He says specifically whether it's the emperor or the governor, we should be subject to governing authorities. And they've flipped that around and said, well, what is the highest authority? It's the Constitution. As if the Constitution is all that, or some kind of narrowing of focus is in this text. There's no narrowing of focus. The text is about being submissive to governing authorities, plural. 
And the reason why this is important is because it, it, this is their way of justifying their focus on fighting for their First Amendment privileges. But really, the text has nothing to do about fighting for your First Amendment privileges. It's about giving up your privileges and submitting to the government that there is. There's an interesting backstory to this Romans 13 passage, and that is that, uh, that it almost certainly comes out of a context in which Christians had to argue in the public square that they weren't interested in insurrection. The fact is, Christianity looks like an insurrectionist movement. You might be shocked to realize that all of the language that's used in the gospel, whether it's the word gospel or euangelion in Greek, or the description of Jesus as the Savior of the world, the Lord of all, the Son of God. All of that language is language of empire. The emperor is the Lord of all. The emperor's glory is that which is proclaimed in the gospel, the good news. The emperor is the Son of God. The emperor is the Savior of the world. And so for Christians to say, no, the real Savior of the world is Jesus. The real Lord of all is Jesus. The real Son of God is Jesus. And we proclaim his gospel. This is seen as being a direct challenge to Rome. And this passage was almost certainly written to say, to, or to provide a passage so when the Roman centurion comes knocking, you can open the text and say, look, we are not actually trying to rebel against you. We're actually, uh, we're actually compliant. We're actually supporters of the, our responsibilities to obey the laws of our land. I can just imagine someone coming to Paul and saying, Paul, do you realize that this, the way you're talking about this Christian gospel is going going to get us into trouble. We're going to die. And so Paul says, oh, I need to write a section here to kind of provide a go-to passage. Like when the, when, when the centurion is there, here's where you turn. Romans chapter 13 is your key text. And it goes on to say, we also pay our taxes. So this is meant to say we're not an insurrectionist movement. We're not an anti-tax movement. We're meant to be good citizens of Rome, but we also are proclaiming a different gospel. In any case, all of that nuance is lost in this video, and the video kind of transforms the text, which is meant to proclaim Christian submission to the government into being a fighting idea, that Christians are to fight for your First Amendment rights. That's with kind of their transformation of the text into being a justification for why we have to fight for our First Amendment rights. The text clearly is not saying that, but that is the way they seem to be understanding it. Okay, so I'm unimpressed with the Family Heritage Alliance a biblical argument for why they're doing what they're doing. It just doesn't seem to me like that's what either of those texts intend to do. In fact, it almost seems like it's the opposite of what those texts are wanting to say. So the second thing that they argued is that there's a clear, well, they didn't even say clear, there's a First Amendment problem with this, this bill. This bill that requires pastors to be mandatory reporters of child neglect and abuse, that that is a, an infringement of their First Amendment privileges. So I'd like to say several things to argue back against that. First of all, it, this is already settled law in 45 states. If this was a First Amendment infringement, somebody would have noticed before now. In fact, there was an attorney that was uh, testifying in favor of this bill who did some research the night before and found that in those 45 states, as far as this person could find, there's not one case that this person could find where there's a challenge brought against these mandatory 
statutory requirements based on First Amendment privileges for clergy. Not one case. So just think how remarkable that is. 45 states of the United States require clergy to be mandatory reporters, and not one instance where this person could find in which uh, a, a challenge had been brought against this legislation. I just think that's immensely important. And there's a specific reason why this is not a First Amendment issue. In other words, there's a specific way, a very clear-cut way to explain why this bill does not infringe on the First Amendment. And that is this. For it to have infringed on the First Amendment, it would have to curtail something specifically religious. It would have to curtail something specifically related to religious faith doctrine practice. It would have to be connected to their religious practice because churches can be curtailed in their activities uh, when it comes to things that are non-religious. Of course they can. In other words, a pastor can't be told by the government how he should interpret the Bible, but he sure as hell can be told how fast he can drive to Bible study. So churches and clergy have to obey the same laws that the rest of us obey unless those laws infringe on something specifically related to their religion. So let's ask that diagnostic question. In what way does this bill interfere with their religious practice? So this would have to be associated with something directly connected to their religion, their beliefs, their practices as people of faith, their understanding of the Bible. That, that would have to be connected to something directly connected to their faith. And so in what way could a mandatory requirement to report suspected cases of a child neglect and abuse, in what way could that be connected to their religion? Well, their religion would have to have a specific kind of commitment to not protect children or to turn a blind eye to children in need or to resist any government communication. It would have to be connected to something specifically religious. And there's nothing specifically religious about this bill. This bill is more like telling a pastor how fast he can drive to Bible study. It's more like that than it is like telling a pastor how to interpret the Bible. Or telling a church what their beliefs on the sacraments ought to be. It's not like that. This bill is a bill that protects the needs of children. And this should be in line with their religion because we all know that children are important in the eyes of God. In fact, I have right in front of me Matthew chapter 18, which says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child and put him among them and said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus clearly put a high priority on children, put a high priority on children as an example of what it means to be a child of God. So Jesus clearly prioritized the needs of children, the importance of children, the the way that children can be examples to the rest of us of a humble child of God. So how could this bill be an infringement on First Amendment privileges when the church itself is supposed to place high 
high priority on the needs of children and protecting children. Children should be safe in our churches. So it seems to me like that groups like the Family Heritage Alliance end up being out of sync with the real spirit of Christianity. They're so concerned about protecting their First Amendment rights, about fighting for their First Amendment rights, about making sure that there's no infringement on their First Amendment rights, that they end up putting themselves on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of the law. They should be placing priority on the needs of children, the protection of children, the welfare of children. And instead, they're so fearful about losing their own rights and privileges that they end up creating communities where children are less safe. It is an uncomfortable fact that it's very hard to place priority on the needs of children, on the protection, on the welfare of children in our churches. It's very hard. It's much easier to place priority on the needs of the adults. And yet, in terrible circumstances where you find out that a youth pastor's been having sex with the little boys or little girls in the youth group, uh, it's the last thing that the church staff or the pastor wants to do to call, pick up the phone and make that terrible, terrible phone call. And so what can so easily happen? You fire the guy and send them on, and then they do it again. And we know of cases where this has happened, where people have gone from church to church, getting sexually involved with children, and they're not reported because it's not the law. So I think this is very sad. It's very sad that children will be less safe in South Dakota and our churches in South Dakota. They'll be safer in North Dakota. They'll be safer in Nebraska. They'll be safer in Minnesota. But they'll be less safe in South Dakota because certain people decided that they would protect their own freedoms and liberties as adults rather than placing priority on the needs of children. And I think Jesus would have done otherwise.